0: Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows that abolishing medical racism can start in medical schools. Today we have Bianca,
1: Julia, and Cullen. And
0: today's episode is partly a continuation of last week's episode and partly its own discreet thing. So last week, we discussed medical racism with Maddie and Bernie, two medical students who were two of the co-authors of a report called Toward the Abolition of Biological Race in Medicine. We discussed the ways that healthcare providers, educators, and researchers throughout history have subjugated Black and Brown patients by using faulty studies to derive different formulas whose outputs have resulted in misdiagnosis, treatment, or overtreatment of these Black and Brown patients. We talked about how disparities in health boil down to racism and systemic power imbalances and not biological race to the extent that biological race even exists. Spoiler alert, it does not. We talked about the ways that healthcare providers can bring this movement towards abolishing the use of race and determining treatment into their own communities. And so today we wanted to peer into the pedagogical approaches of different medical schools across the United States In terms of what they do and what they do not discuss about race and racism within the medical field. We also wanted to discuss the ways that non-white students in medical schools navigate what might be seen as a racialized environment from within their own medical schools. So today we have two lovely guests, both of whom are current medical students, Zania and Jamie. Yay.
2: Welcome. (laughs) Um,
0: Welcome. Welcome. Um, We're so, so glad to have you both. And so why don't you both start off by introducing yourselves in whatever ways you feel comfortable and maybe also mention um, what particular ways or what particular things drew you into doing work in undoing racism
3: within the medical field. Zonia, why don't we start with you? Good morning, good evening, good night, whenever you happen to be listening to this podcast. I hope you're all getting into some crack today. The iris kind of crack, which means fun. (laughs) Uh, Listening to my voice certainly qualifies as your daily dose of crack. I'm Zania Moore, born abroad, raised in Pittsburgh, and Barbados is home for me. Um, I'm a poet, a photographer, and occasionally study some medicine in between running projects to strive towards environmental justice here locally in Philadelphia and to combat voter suppression. check out my work at distracted lens on Instagram, all one word. Uh, I spent a while attempting to run from the specter of addressing racism in medicine and society more broadly because it's a daunting problem that persistently exists in back room gray area conversations and spaces. One can never be certain of the impact one will have with their work but by combating racism and striving for equity in health, climate, economics, and opportunity, whatever the impact I may ha- or may not have will be extremely rewarding for me. Mm-hmm. Racism in healthcare is absolutely one of its most insidious forms, and helping healthcare professionals along their personal journey to becoming anti-racist in a non-judgmental fac- fashion is exciting and impactful work to me.
0: Yeah, awesome. absolutely. Mm, what about you, Jamie?
3: Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Jamie Yee. I use sheer
4: pronouns and I was born and raised in Easton, Pennsylvania, and I'm now located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, I guess I'm a Virgo who doesn't I get all my oral uh, scope information from CoStar, so I don't really know that much. But I'm <laughs> Uh, I've been working on unlearning the perfectionist tendencies and like buying in the productivity culture that I feel like are like associated with Virgo. Um,
2: I just want to throw in a pitch here not to interrupt you, but we do have a roasted episode for Virgo season dropping on Patreon very soon. Um, so everyone can learn what it means to be a Virgo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. I need to be
3: roasted. Um
4: uh, so, I feel like as to why I pursue anti racist work, it's just like it's wrong and needs to be addressed and done, undone. And then, I think specifically for racism in medicine, I feel like even though I'm pretty jaded about a lot of things, I do ultimately see being a healthcare provider as something that's genuinely needed in the world and can be really rewarding and impactful. Um, But that the way it operates in the US is often really bad um, and perpetuates and exacerbates the inequalities that exist here. So I think for me, I'm like seeking a way to try to move things in such a way where my career practice can be more in alignment with what I believe and stand for, um, because it definitely feels like the field of medicine is just not in concordance with what I believe. Mm. Um, And then some of the things I work on at school uh, is educating about fat phobia in medicine and promoting weight neutrality, uh, police abolition,
2: and Asian American organizing. Awesome. That's awesome. Thank y'all both for joining us.
0: Yeah, I think We're both, we're all like super excited to have you both. Um, and I know we have a lot of questions related to what you both do on campus. Um, so kind of that, that kind of transitions us into what we wanted to talk about next, which is like your experiences in medical school as students of color. Um, so like before we started recording, and as I was like researching this episode, I was looking up some statistics that were compiled by the Association of American Medical Colleges, which reported that Um, of students enrolled in American medical schools in the 2019 to 2020 school year, just less than half, or 49.8% of those students are white. And if you factor in the next highest represented racial group, which is Asian, then around 72% of all medical students in the U.S. are accounted for. Um, of course surveys requesting racial data are limited in scope as we know that race is constructed and often on surveys The categories are overly vague and enforce monolithic depictions of different ethnic groups Um, That being said, I'm at least personally still curious about y'all's lived experiences as non-white medical students And so kind of wanted to just kind of give you the space to be able to talk about um, those kinds of experiences Um, I know Zunia is the president of her school's chapter of SNMA and is a fellow at the Penn Program on Race, Science, and Society. What um, is SNMA? Sorry,
2: just so our listeners know.
0: Um, it's a Student National Medical Association. I'm sure Zunia can talk a lot more awesome. about that. very cool. Yeah. Um, so Zunia, did you want to talk about your experiences there and at Penn
3: Med in general? Absolutely. So Student National Medical Association is frankly a terrible name for the organization but because <laughs> it is essentially... Um, the Black Student Union within the medical field, within the medical community. Um, Membership is open to more than just individuals of African-American descent. However, the goal of of our organization is to promote community within um, the Black medical field to help educate uh, people outside of the community to create and um, foster a generation of culturally sensitive and um, structurally competent physicians meaning people who are going to be accepting of the wide ranges of the ways in which patients will express their illnesses and will talk about their illnesses and not um, categorically uh, forget about certain diseases just because of a, a patient is within a particular race or ethnicity. Um, the So my work there has really been most rewarding in terms of creating community amongst um, the Black medical students on campus. I think that medical school is very opaque. Um, and a lot of us don't have uh, familial resources or friend resources who can help us through that. Even my, my mother is a physician, but she did, I have older parents. And so she did medical school so long ago that all of her advice was just completely irrelevant and like, very much <laughs> not helpful. Um, I think like for anatomy, she was like, oh, just draw posters and put them all over your room. And I was like, mom, I will go crazy if I wake up and see anatomy every single <laughs> oh <my> day. <laughs> like, that's a terrible <laughs> idea. Uh, and the Penn Program on Race, Science, and Society, we are researching how uh, race has become such a part of medical research, and in particular with, with regard to kidney function, which we'll get into a bit later, and um, spirometry, which measures lung function. Um, more broadly, my experiences as a like non-white medical student, I think that I've had issues fitting into certain boxes. Um, my father is from Guyana, which makes me Latina as well. But because of the way that people generally think about Latina, uh, about being Latina or, or Latinx, um, it, I never felt comfortable claiming that as a part of my community, and have had have had space within the medical school on the positive side to start to claim that portion of my identity and engage with that community as I'm also fluent in Spanish. Um, But as a a black student, um, I remember the second day of medical school, my professor came up um, and was looking for me and like described who I was to the line of black students who I wasn't sitting with. And they were like, oh, it's Zania, it's Zania. And she's like, no, 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 there's no way it could be Zania not sure why it couldn't be me but like it was at the end of the day Um, and so that was just a weird experience of being like called out as part of like being able to be identified so easily just based off of my race and the fact that there are so few of us in the class Mm -hmm. Um, and then also having experiences of being called by other people's names um, Mm -hmm. about being mistaken for others about having people who I trying to say hi to people who I see almost every day after I've changed my hair or changed my hair color and having blank stares back and like people looking straight through me as if they don't know Mm -hmm. me. Yeah I think those are some of my experiences as a medical student of color.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, What about your thoughts Jamie? Um, Yeah I
4: definitely like resonate with what zania has said about like oh being mistaken for others of your same ethnicity um and also just like medical school creating like super specific demographic boxes for people to check um and it being just like a really opaque process and every step along the way there's like things that somehow everyone else knows that you're supposed to do but you don't necessarily you didn't necessarily know that you were supposed to do like um right now we're getting ready to
1: start our
4: principal clinical experience so like our first clinical year in the hospital and apparently we're supposed to buy these like super expensive subscriptions to a test bank so that we can like do well on our shelf exams um it's like this is my first time hearing about it um somehow other people have already started like buying these things and doing them throughout the entire year but that's okay Um, and then I guess more generally, I think a lot about my positionality as like an East Asian medical student. Um, so like always trying to recognize the relative privilege and proximity to whiteness that East Asians hold, especially within medicine in which like, uh, like we represent such a high proportion of the medical field in comparison, uh, to how much of the U S population we are. Uh, Yeah, also still definitely feeling frustrated with classmates and faculty on race issues. Um, I do try my best to push back on problematic things when they happen and to directly challenge faculty and peers, um, because I do have some level of safety and people find me inherently less aggressive as an East Asian woman. Um, And also, I try to push back when Asian peers perpetrate and perpetuate anti-Blackness or are inappropriately centering themselves in certain conversations. Um, but I also definitely still get reminded that at the end of the day like the people who determine the racial hierarchy and where you are on it are white people and East Asians and Asian Americans more generally are still different from them. Um, like there was a white classmate at the beginning of the year who said something along the lines of like, I think I'm getting to know all of our classmates pretty well and I basically know everyone's names I mean like there's all the random Asians but like I'm never going to learn oh my
3: their my God. Names. Um, and yeah, uh, so I you know what my response thinking. to those are, Jamie? <laughs> I call every white guy Sam or Ben.
4: Uh, I, mean, uh, I mean, yeah, within yeah. our own circles of like the students of color, we're like, oh yeah, like that white student, the one who like plays baseball, the one who does wrestling, like who knows? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, uh, and then I think as to like race issues, at my school, I feel like, uh, so I'm at Harvard, and I feel like we have a less diverse faculty than a lot of other institutions, Um, although I can't say for sure since I've never attended any other one, Um, but that also definitely contributes to marginalization of non-white students. Uh, Like in this first year of preclinical studies, I don't think my society, so we're divided into like four smaller subgroups of students who have class every day together. I don't think we've had a single black faculty member. Um, I think we've also had, Pretty explicitly awful and racist faculty members, but there's a feeling that nothing will be done about it like there's this one specific preclinical course director who's been awful to a lot of students across many years of teaching. And their reviews are always bad and yet they're still teaching the course um and every single new year they kind of try to make it seem like it's the previous year students fault that there are complaints and it's just because like they don't, they don't work hard enough or something like that, um, and I think the administration often goes for the sort of like reformist reforms that we also hear being suggested in a lot of other spheres, like with the police, like diversity training is the biggest thing. Mm. Um, And then there's also this thing that happens where like administrators and even like classmates, because our classmates are also perpetrators of these inequalities, like at a certain level, um, they'll refer to our community as like a quote unquote, family where we should assume best intent and do our best to like help each other grow, which totally decontextualizes things and invalidates concerns about real marginalization and further exploits students and their labor. Um, Like basically all the progressive things that happen in medicine and medical school are because of like residents and medical students, like pushing the field forward. Mm -hmm. Um, And that work is like really not recognized. Um, And I think one example is that my year is preparing to go into our rotations. And one of the bullets they had on their slide about student mistreatment was that, Start, quote, part of clinical training may be uncomfortable, for example, being put on the spot, but does not constitute mistreatment, end quote. Uh, So things like that also definitely add to the anxiety of starting in the hospital for many of my friends and me who are like queer and or students of color. Uh, Like just this feeling of if we report something, will will we be taken seriously or will our concerns be brushed off? If we talk Mm -hmm. about like a working environment that's unfriendly to minority students, um, will that be considered real or is that just going to be seen as us complaining and like say, uh, us not standing up to the scrutiny. Um, and students obviously are doing a lot of things to organize, uh, so various student groups, like especially our SNMA uh, have come up with certain demands and ideas for administration, including increasing URM, uh, which stands for underrepresented in medicine admissions, uh, addressing racism and faculty feedback for students, uh, creating a community investment fund and abolishing the university police. Mm-hmm. Um, I've personally been involved the most with the police ab- abolition group, uh, which is working with the wider school community. Um, and if we have a chance to get to talk to like medical students' uh, roles in police reform, I can talk a little bit more about what specifically our group has been doing with that.
3: So to add uh, to what you're talking about, Jamie, as a part of SNMA here at the University of Pennsylvania, we also developed our, our own big l- list of initiatives and take it, took it to administration. I think. One of, one of the things I noticed throughout that process is because there's this fear, great fear of retaliation, there's this great fear of pushing back against a system that has a lot of influence in crafting important letters that are going to help you either get, a, get into a good residency or not get into a good residency. Um, that students are afraid, especially at the University of Pennsylvania, to be more progressive. I was very much in favor of trying to push for police abolition here at Penn, like the Penn police also play a big role in the West Philadelphia community. So it's more Mm. than just protecting students at Penn, it's also protecting the community around us. And that's something that I am passionate and care a lot about. Uh, And we ultimately voted to um, take that off of the list because, because people were afraid, because people didn't think that it was our place as medical students to try and influence the campus as a whole. Um, and also in part because there are so many issues within the school of medicine that we felt that keeping the focus tight would allow us to actually like implement some solid reforms and see some changes and Mm -hmm. fortunately we have they are looking for they implemented a new course on the intersections of race science and society um, that is being piloted and hopefully will be rolled out in the future um dorothy roberts's book uh fatal intervention which is about how race became a part of um, medicine and, and medical uh, education was implemented as, as summer reading as well as uh, Damon Tweedy's book, Black Man, Black Man in a White Coat, is a book that I'm supposed to read may read. <laughs> Not quite radical enough for my taste. <laughs> Um,
2: I had a question I just wanted to jump in um, since we were talking uh, specifically Zania about some stuff that's happening on Penn's campus. Um, just because so I actually worked at Penn this past year as a visiting fellow um, in the history department or well in a in an interdisciplinary center I'm a historian Um, and one thing that I talked to some of my colleagues about who are who study history is this collection that Penn's museum has which is the Morton Skull collection are you guys at the medical school familiar with this
3: at all Morton Skull Collection. I am not. I'm more familiar with what they have at um, a museum in Santa Santa City than Mueller Museum. Oh yeah, what? which is.
0: Amy yeah. and I went to that
2: <laughs> together. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we did go. <laughs> <laughs> so the, it was the, so much. Yeah, yeah. the The Morton Skull Collection is something that could be kind of at the Mueller Museum. Um. Uh. But the the reason that I ask is, so um, Samuel George Morton was a, a physician who was based in Philadelphia and worked in like the first half of the 19th century. And he, during his sort of time as a researcher, collected like literally, I believe, hundreds of human skulls. Um and used it used those skulls to prove one of his pet theses which was of course that w- white people were the superior race um so he's like an early phrenologist essentially um and pen purchased and now is the holder of this collection of skulls and they keep them in the pen university museum um and it, it there's this like i mean he's you know this this deeply troubling, I mean, troubling is not even, doesn't even begin to cover it, like this, this, you know, hugely problematic figure in the history of medicine, who used these skulls for white supremacist pseudoscience. And people have also made claims trying to get these skulls back because as you might imagine, if you're thinking about whose skulls are accessible to be used in science, it was frequently Native people and Black people and so there have been claims that have been made to try to get these skulls back to the descendants of the people to whom they belonged. And the Penn Museum has been really hostile to like any kind of repatriation. Um, So anyway, since we're talking and since we've been talking the past couple of weeks on this podcast about the really racist origins of a lot of medicine, and since we have a guest from Penn on the episode today, I just thought I would bring up um, just another way that these institutions are like horribly complicit in the long history of medical racism.
3: Yeah, I would probably say it's a very strategic omission on their part that they have not spoken about the of skulls. I know for a fact that our anatomy teacher is crazy about all things that relate to anatomy. And so I'm sure he knows about that mm. and did not mention it in any of his very long, very comprehensive lectures last year. And so wow. I think it also uh, goes to, to prove the point that it is not like that racism is now being hidden mm. uh, and its effects are still there and still present. There's just more of a conscious effort to, to make it difficult to mm. talk about it and find out about it and, and show that it's still happening.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I think uh, quick aside, just like related to this about like the school not wanting to recognize the racist things that are happening within it. Um, Just in general, I feel like there's a lot in medical school education about like how, maybe like how can we be advocates for the wider community that we serve and our patients um, without recognizing that like A, like students are also impacted from impacted identities. um, And then also B, like a lot of bad shit happens within medical school too. Um, So I feel like the like Harvard equivalent example is that like my society is named home society, uh, which is named after uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes senior um, and when they tried to admit black students to HMS for the first time Holmes was against that uh, Wow. yeah so there's been multiple attempts to try to remove his name from the society like every few years the medical students like start a petition and like try to get it renamed which like really shouldn't be a big deal but like it never goes anywhere
3: oh my god Yes, I, that also um, reminds me of outreach that I received a few weeks ago about a professor named Albert Klingman. Klingman, uh, he did exploited prisoners, the children, the elderly in all of his research, and also um, per, like conducted dermatological tests on these vulnerable populations. And is currently being honored at Penn for a lectureship in his honor and in his in his name and. Um, actually faculty at Penn, so not even residents, not even students, people who have more power at Penn have been campaigning since late 2019 against against this action and they have not been able to get anywhere and they're still currently actively fundraising in the name of someone who exploited it. I think Penn's response was, and I quote, they regret the manner in which his research was conducted um, and emphasizes the university's commitment to research ethics, but they give no indication that they're willing to take any action regarding the lectureship. Oh, geez.
0: That's so frustrating. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, I guess that, on that note, it kind of transitions us into what we wanted to discuss next, which is the ways that medical racism is still being taught or otherwise upheld in medical school. So... On last week's episode, our guests, Maddie and Bernie, talked about like different medical formulas and coefficients that factor in a patient's race in order to determine things like their lung capacity or their kidney function, as Zania was mentioning earlier, among other things. Um, Of course, as we discussed on that episode, those formulas were kind of touted as objective and rigorously tested, while neither of those things were true. Um, The researchers who propagated them simply wanted to put forth the illusion of legitimacy so that they could justify their bigoted sentiments. I remember Maddie said something on that on last week's episode that resounded with me, which was that these formulas largely assume that Black patients are either less susceptible to pain and illness than white patients, or that Black patients' bodily functions are somehow more susceptible to, quote unquote, abnormality than those of white patients. Um, Of course, all of those beliefs are just like solely founded in bigotry and nothing else. And so I wanted to ask our guests, are the formulas that we were discussing last week, like EGFR to determine kidney function or differential lung capacity and spirometry between black and white patients still being taught at your schools? And if so, how and what are your general thoughts about that?
3: Yeah. So I was talking to some upperclassmen about this issue because we have not yet gone through our pulmonology or renal units as yet. And, and I wanted to speak as to like, what is actually currently happening at the school, um, within, with regard to EGFR it is still very much being taught at the school of medicine. They have not yet integrated into the actual curriculum, any conversations on what, on whether or not it's controversial and, um, the efforts to change this formula. Um, student groups, again, student labor organized uh, to educate like the broader um, first year class about the fact that it's rooted in racism. And I and I also like, conducted a good bit of research this summer on the history of how spirometry came to be viewed in, in such a racialized manner. And I think what was really quite fascinating about what I uncovered was that this was in an attempt to understand a complex subject, uh, humans immediately defaulted to the idea that there had to be some sort of difference based off of race and then set out with the this implicit assumption, with that as a research objective. Um, and we all know in science, we like to pretend to be objective, pretend to not have any biases in any of our research but the research w- was set out with that as the fundamental premise. And of course, if you're gonna go looking for these differences, you are gonna find some sort of difference, not because it exists biologically, but because of the systemic racism, because of the slums that black people were, have been living in for so many years, that's gonna affect their their, their lung function ultimately. And so you are gonna see a difference. And it was quite interesting that the idea that lung, fun- that lung function of black people might be, their capacity might be smaller than people of other races because of the conditions that they lived in or because maybe they, they actually do have a disease because the cutoff at which Black people's lung functioning was uh, was lowered and what was considered pathological was very close to the same in a lot of these studies, but they assumed that it was because Black people had an issue, not because maybe they there was actually something wrong with their lungs. Um, And furthermore, it also got exported, this idea got exported to China, to South Africa uh, through grants that were given off by um, a foundation to to then pursue this research. And and it turned into a global belief of this idea um, by introducing the same premises into research that's being conducted in, in other countries and even getting down into the level that people researched that with amongst different ethnic groups in China uh, there is going to be some differential lung capacity because that is the same thing as being a different race and and therefore there there must be a difference there. Um, And finally what was most troubling is in the field of pulmonology there are many different tests that are used but it was primarily spirometry that was interpreted on a racialized basis uh, and because of this history of racialized interpre- interpretation on spirometry researchers then working on other tests within pulmonology assumed well wait if it's different if they have differential lung capacities under this test then they have to have differential lung capacities under this other test and although for this other test we've never had any history of making corrections based off of a patient's race. We now need to do the research study to figure out what those corrections are because they have to exist here because they exist in this other test. Um, And so it's quite a complicated, convoluted story of research being exported by international lectures, being supported in different countries throughout the world by uh, foundations who have specific agendas, uh, and then exporting that assumption through Out the entire field of pulmonology um, based off of its existing within one test.
4: Yeah, I think um, talking about like EGFR and spirometry specifically, um, we are, we don't like do a lot of formulas ourselves during preclinical year. So we'll just introduce like, oh, this formula gets used in clinical practice, but we're not asked to do them ourselves yet. Um, and they have caveated them, um, specifically like EGFR and spirometry, by saying, like, oh, it's quote unquote like controversial to be using race as a factor in these equations. Um, and sometimes they'll like include a thing that like the student groups wrote. Um, so there's like sometimes a mention of it. Um, but then even when there's like a slight recognition that it's controversial, Um, when we get into the wards and at the hospitals, like all of the hospitals that HMS is affiliated with still use the EGFR equation in clinical practice. So even if the school teaches that it might be problematic, it's still impacting patient care. And like, we're still expected to use them like when we're at the hospital. Um, So I think one of the weird ways that like Harvard specifically like exports responsibility is that um, a lot of medical schools own their hospitals, or their hospitals own them, but there's like some sort of direct relationship between them. Uh, whereas Harvard is just in a like partnership with the hospitals, like we don't own Brigham and Women's or like Mass General uh, or Beth Israel. So it's more like there's a partnership that agrees where like these hospitals agree to be teaching hospitals for us. So the faculty will say things like, oh, because like, Harvard's not like directly in charge of these hospitals. It's like that's why there's a difference between sometimes like what we teach and like what goes on in the hospital. And like that's why it's so difficult to like get any change done because it's like the hospital and the med school isn't actually like connected um, in ways that like other institutions are, um, which is just like it's adding like huge layers of bureaucracy to the whole thing. um But yeah. And then I think with what Zania was talking about with um, just like I guess like I would describe it as maybe like cultural and scientific imperialism with like exporting these beliefs. Um, it's, I feel like this context of like how these equations and these medical beliefs came into being are just not taught enough in school. Mm -hmm. Um, like there's this concept, I think sometimes that people in science and medicine, like general STEM fields, like poo-poo the humanities and be like oh it's like soft it's not actual facts it's just like people's opinions and feelings (laughs) it's like really like an understanding of social context and history is like as vital to medical practice as the basic science and science really tries to pretend that it's like ahistorical and neutral uh when it's really not um and Um, If this would be a good time to transition to talking about some of the fat phobia stuff, I can, or if you have other questions, we can go there too.
0: It doesn't matter. I have no follow ups, but if any of the other hosts do, that's also cool. Yeah,
4: go
1: for it. I guess. Oh, sorry. One, I there was one question that I had that I think might follow well off of what you guys have both been talking about. Um, I guess I was just I wanted to ask about like if there are any specific challenges within some of this organizing work that you're doing in trying to change med school curriculums and just organizing medical students generally. Um, because I feel like a lot of the organizing that is like really heavily reported on in mainstream media is mostly undergraduate students. And I guess like you've been talking about, there are like some maybe different attitudes that like people who are studying science and medicine might have. And then also they're just like very formally different types of programs. Mm. So yeah, I was just curious if there are any like specific challenges that you feel like you've encountered within organizing in medical school specifically. Yeah,
3: I think One of the biggest challenges is that medical school already places so many different demands on one's time. Uh, It's the sort of school where I could study, like, actually all of my waking hours and still not know everything that is presented to me every single week. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot, there are still a good number of medical fields that don't have, like, the same fundamental respect for work that is done in organizing, for work that is done to change systems. As they do for uh, being in the lab and doing basic science research or doing clinical research, which to me, it makes no sense because like when you're in a lab, you have direct control over so many variables, over so many things. You get to design the entire experiment. Uh, and doing organizing work has many more moving parts, has many, you have many more um, positions to take account, tensions to manage. Uh, And it's like inherently harder and more difficult. And so I think, especially as someone who coming in was, I was very interested in orthopedic surgery and that's a field where they very much, they expect you to have several different research um, experiences and have like worked in the lab and then all of these things. Um, That was not the work that was meaningful to me. And that was not what I wanted to be spending my time on. Uh, And so I personally have just pivoted to being more interested in a field, an area of medicine that, has respect for that work um and I also think learning the art of turning anti-racist work into scholarships because that is the currency that is valued within um academia turn it into papers turn it into mm-hmm. talks into um really anything you can put on your cv is another like really valuable skill and tool that uh, helped when I was trying to finish up my first year of medical school and uh couldn't spend any time studying because all of my time was spent um, helping manage the emotions of the SNMA community at Penn.
1: Yeah, and um, Jamie, is there anything you wanted to add to that?
4: Yeah, um, I think all of that, and also I think similarly to what Zania said earlier, just about like this idea that you can't like burn any bridges, um, like. I alluded to, like, a professor that we've had issues with. Like, I've been in, like, direct confrontation with her, which, like, makes me, like, not want to ever, like, rotate through her hospital or, like, take an elective of her because I'm, like, afraid what she'll write on my evaluation in the future. Um, so, there, like, the med school community and just, like, medicine in general is just so much smaller than it was in the undergraduate world. So it just definitely feels like you have to be more careful um, about what you say and um, what latitude will be given to you. Um, I also think another challenge with medical school is that there, I feel like an undergrad organizing, because even though there's like freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, you're like all relatively in the same life stage and like classes are mixed so you'll like interact with upperclassmen a lot more. But in medical school, like unless you actively seek out inter-class relationships, it's like super easy to only talk to people who are in your year. Um, and like every single year is like doing something totally different. Um, so like especially with our curriculum, we only have one year of preclinical courses. Uh, so we basically don't overlap at all uh, with the incoming students. So it's really hard to like pass on institutional knowledge um, because there's just like this idea that once you get into the hospital and like start your rotations, it's like, all of your time will be gone, um, and there's just not a lot of time for you to do like transitions with groups or to be like, "Oh, this is what we've worked on in the past, or like this is what has happened in the past and like that it's just harder to build on each other's work, so it just often feels like like we have to like restart things over and over again, and like we don't necessarily know where the threads of projects that were started by other students went.
3: right. To your, your burning the bridges point, I think that that is really tough, but I've come to be in the camp of, you might as well burn those bridges because it was a straw bridge in the first place. If that person really does hold these racist beliefs, they were not going to be there to support you. They were not going to write what you need to have in and, and whatever letter you're asking them and whatever grade you were going to get from them. And so you might as well burn it and advance the movement, then um, tread carefully and still get burned yourself.
4: Yeah, so true. Yeah, there's also something I've heard from, like, people who are applying to residency where sometimes they're afraid to, like, talk about their activism and organizing, like, what identities matter to them and being political. Um, and I think that's also a similar sentiment of, like, if I talk about this in my application, like, the hospital doesn't want to interview me, like, that's not somewhere I want
2: to work anyways. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um So sort of switching gears a little bit, we've talked before on the podcast um, about the issue of fat phobia in the medical field. And, uh, you know, as is so often the case, racism also comes into play with this problem. Um, Jamie, you mentioned that you've been um, like working on and giving presentations on this topic. Could you talk to us a little bit about the intersections of racism and fat phobia in medicine and like the work that you've been doing on that topic?
4: Yeah, I think this is another like really big example of how we don't really talk about the historical context of our quote unquote science came from. Um, So like, first of all, um, I think it's important to give credit to like the resources and people I've learned a lot from and have helped me unlearn a lot of internalized fat phobia and healthism, especially since I myself am a person living in a smaller body. Um, So some like other great podcasts to listen to include She's All Fat, uh, do no harm and no body asked for this. Um, and then there's a book out there called Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings that talks really explicitly about the relationship between fat phobia, diet culture, body restriction, um, and racism. Um, I also want to like add a disclaimer that the term obesity is really gross. Um, and I think the body positivity and neutrality movement are really trying to move away from that term. Um, the etymology, etymological origin is actually the Latin word obesus, meaning having eaten until fat, uh, which is obviously like really problematic and reinforces the idea that living in a larger body is the fault of an individual's habit. Mm. Um, But it's still universally used in medicine. um, So I'll still sometimes include it in my discussion, um, although I have been trying to incorporate more alternatives um, and like using this in my oral presentations uh, in class, like person in a larger body or person in a smaller body. Um, but yeah, so to make a really long story short, I feel like there's just often been for centuries of preoccupation in various Western societies with what the ideal female body is, and more specifically what the ideal white female body is. Um, and though the ideal has changed over time, it's almost always consistently been in opposition to what white people thought of the bodies of people of color, especially people of African descent. Um, So, like in the book I mentioned earlier, uh, Sabrina Strings documents a lot of the super explicitly fat phobic and racist comments that Europeans from the 1600s onwards have made that often pathologize black and brown bodies. Um, And they also use this to establish, again, the biological basis of racial hierarchy. Um, It would often be things positing white people as more moral, more religious. Uh, Thinner, able to resist the temptations of food and flesh in order to pursue higher-order thinking. Um, That was a really common theme during the Enlightenment period, that like thinness was equated to higher-order thinking, like being more enlightened, uh, being more rational, being more intelligent. (laughs) Um, While Black people spent their time being lazy, eating a lot of food, reclining in the sun, because in Africa everywhere is hot apparently. Um, and we naturally more inclined towards being fat. Um, and I think like you talked about a lot in last week's episode, all this stuff about biological racial, racial differences also contributed to justifications for slavery and dehumanization of black people. Uh, so body weight was super linked to morality, religion, and su- racial superiority. And this is the kind of foundation that obesity science and obesity medicine was mm-hmm. built on. Um, and I can basically guarantee that there's not a single medical school that will ever discuss this in their curriculum at the current moment. Um, And there's definitely people pushing to change that. Um, And that's why I think it's so important to start these uh, conversations among medical students because medical students are definitely the most malleable in their thinking about how to approach patients. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like uh, in certain fields, like once people are attending and have been practicing for a long time, it's like really difficult to change their minds about things like this like I think some like really notorious fields for like linking obesity uh and weight to health are surgery like surgeons refusing to operate on patients who are above a certain BMI um oh cardiologists endocrinologists like all, all of our classes about diabetes were just like every single patient who had diabetes two was BMI over like 30 whereas every patient with Diabetes type one was described as like young and thin and otherwise exercises a lot and very athletic. Um, And just there's like really no interrogation about where this history comes from and like specifically with BMI and like the healthy weight tables. They actually came from health insurance companies in the early 1900s who paid doctors to produce research on the link between obesity and mortality. Uh, so there's also just so many financial, in- financial and capitalist interests into trying to tell people that it's like, A, their fault that they weigh more than others, and B, that this is bad. Um, and then on top of all of these other things, the eugenics movement was really gaining steam in the U.S. also during the 1900s. Uh, and people, including the medical establishment, were really concerned with fertility of white women. Um, so that was another like argument they used to say that Fatness was bad because they thought that fatness would cause you to be infertile, um, which was bad because they needed to continue to propagate the white race. Uh, so a lot of the things that we learn in medical school and that we still use in practice about weight, have their origins is like, like really ugly history. Um, and then we see fat phobia in medicine continuing to be weaponized against black folks today, whether it's something like Jillian Michaels judging Lizzo, um, to, people blaming Eric Garner and George Floyd for their own deaths and saying that like one, their size made them more threatening to the police, which we, which many of us have recognized as a really familiar tune of black people's bodies being threatening and two, their underlying health conditions and their quote unquote obesity as a reason why they couldn't survive a long amount of a, like, a minutes of choking. Uh, so it's a little, I see it as a direct link to the 1700s rhetoric about black bodies being too like savage and big wow Wow. yeah that's
1: all that is all really interesting and i didn't know any of that so thank you for sharing that with us um i guess one question that i had for both of you um i feel like a lot of these things around fat phobia in doctor's offices links to this experience that i feel like i and a lot of my friends have had where it's sort of like you're body or your health or your lifestyle is sort of not taken on its own terms um and I feel like fat phobia is one huge example of that um another example that I think of is like when doctors ask if you drink or use drugs and then there's often this sort of like light shaming that goes along with that like oh don't drink so much or something like that um But I've personally never been asked, like, why do you drink or use drugs? Or would you like tips on using those substances more safely? And I feel like if a doctor were to ask me that, we would definitely exchange more useful information than just sort of like them saying, stop that. Um, Mm -hmm. And it can feel to me, at least, like there are these attitudes that doctors need to really change people's behaviors and people's bodies rather than help people live healthier lives within those bodies and within the context of all the other things they're dealing with. Um, So I guess I'm curious like if you feel like those sorts of attitudes are taught or somehow encouraged in medical school or do you have any thoughts on like where those sorts of attitudes come from?
4: I think there's, I actually have been having conversations about these sorts of things with like fellow classmates. And I do think there are some discussions that we have that are facilitated by faculty members around like meeting a patient where they're at um, and like not defining what health is for a patient. But at its root, there's like this really deep seated conception of health, what health looks like within Western medicine. And that this vision is what every single person wants for themselves. Uh, So it can be really difficult to deconstruct that and get people to internalize that no one, like not even your patients, owes it to you to pursue health in the way that you as a provider think they should. Um, Like I think this is just so key and definitely something I'm still working on, but just like this concept that I'm going to repeat that like no one owes you health. Um, and I'm going to shout out to Christina Johnson, um, who I think goes by the handle encouraging dietitian, but she's a dietitian we brought in for an event who really emphasized this and also just generally does a lot of teaching about fat phobia um, and eating disorders. Um, I think it's really hard for people in healthcare to grapple with that because it feels in discordance with a literal description of our jobs. Uh, but I also think that we have to recognize that the way we protect practice medicine and define illness is really heavily influenced by societal values so like definitions of health i think we just had our psychiatry unit so i've been thinking about this a lot are based on whether you're able to be a productive member of society like aka be a worker and contribute to capitalism um i oh also God. think it's easier for the health system to blame individuals rather than systems as is often the case with u.s policy mm-hmm. um like we do have discussions about like motivational interviewing kit, which is basically just like this technique of like figuring out what a patient's desires are and like getting them to come to certain conclusions by themselves rather than like the more paternalistic like you should do this because i told you to mm-hmm. um so there is like movement towards that sort of style instead and like harm reduction um but then in practice when sometimes when we observe attendings or preceptors their behaviors aren't necessarily in agreement with what we get taught at a theoretical level. Um, So like a more superficial example, but like in some of our classes, we'll get taught like to help with destigmatization, you should use person first language and refer to it as like alcohol use disorder instead of alcoholism. But then when we're like with a random attending, they'll still call people like addicts and alcoholics. Um, So there's just a lot of, I think, disagreement throughout the medical field. And I feel like for such deep seated societal things. It's like you have to always be pushing against it or else people will forget because like the tide is to favor just calling people and dismissing them as like addicts. Um, I also think a lot of people have concerns about the amount of time that we get in patient interviews. Um, Like if you only have 15 to 20 minutes scheduled to see a patient, which is the case in a lot of specialties, it feels a lot easier to just say something like, oh, you know you shouldn't be smoking uh, rather than to have a whole conversation about like why someone smokes or uses other drugs or substances, what environmental factors contribute to their habits, understanding like what benefits smoking brings to a patient and what barriers they have to changing their habits, etc. Um, and this anxiety over short appointment starts really early, um, just like from the beginning of medical school. And all the attendings we talk to are always talking about how there's not enough time and that this stage in our training is the longest we'll ever have with our patients. So I feel like in a lot of the conversations I have with my friends someone's always like I'm really concerned that I don't have enough time to practice in like the way that I want to and that I know I should.
3: I want to echo what you said Jamie about um this psychiatry unit and the way that the entire field of psychiatry is predicated upon getting people to getting people's brains to function and what is understood as quote unquote normal and what is understandable to other human beings based on the way that their brains work and that there's not nearly enough emphasis on trying to figure out like what advantages does somebody who has X psychiatric disorder have? Like what perspective do they then have on life that they can contribute to some sort of field that cannot be contributed by anyone else whose brain works in a neurotypical way? I think that the emphasis on on productivity is the ultimate measure of health outcomes. like I, I even i'm in I'm engaged in helping to stand up this clinic network in Africa. and part of our mission statement is to create a healthier and happier workforce. Um, and frankly, that's not what my mission is. My mission is to create healthier and happier people. If they choose to use that time working, that is their choice. I hope that they get the choice because a lot of people don't in a capitalist society. Um, But it's uh, the influence of capitalism on healthcare and on what the ultimate goal of, of a healthcare system is, is sort of at fundamental odds with what the job of a physician is, which is to promote the health of their patients in whatever way the patient sees fit. I also think that more broadly, there's an issue of figuring out what is normal in with with regard to health, and Mm -hmm. trying to fit everybody into this idea of this is what here is the range across which a standard human body or a functioning healthy all of these words and quote he quotes human body looks like and functions as um, and like meeting patients where they're at is something that I'm particularly passionate about and that I believe in and that there is no medical intervention that your patient should do and, and labeling your patient as compliant or non-compliant or refusing to continue to work with a particular patient because they have not followed your recommendations that is putting the blame on them when really it's on you as a provider to to a patient about what their ultimate goals are, there's a lot of assumption that when a patient comes to you, they're looking to get better, they're looking for some sort of change to their health, and there's not enough, perhaps because there's not enough time in a clinical interview these days to to like truly get at what what a patient's underlying motivation and desire is, and then tailor your treatment plan towards that and not towards achieving what medicine, what the various medical fields have defined as normal
4: yeah i think just to like continue off that point as to like how our productivity as providers is measured it's like within the health insurance system of the u.s it's just like a lot of it is like in like it's i think it's like called like relative work value units or something something ridiculous um what yeah it's just like it's one way that health insurance companies like decide like what to pay for or like how much to bill for um my health policy my memory of health policy is a little rusty, but it's just like, totally ridiculous. And a lot of the like, conditions they use for like, oh, this means that your hospital is successful. And this means that your doesn't is based on things like, oh, is your patient like taking these medications? Like, did you achieve these reductions in blood pressure? Um, Like, did you prescribe aspirin every single time after someone had a heart attack? Um, And like these very concrete things that are I think like uh, what one of the guests last week said it's like it's about like diagnosing and like treating specific problems rather than like understanding a holistic person like and actually acting as healers. Um, so there's also just a lot of pressure, I think financially to do things in like a very specific order. and like when we measure success and health by those measures, it's like really easy to see how like if a hospital in like an area where maybe the uh, it's too far from a pharmacy, Um, or various other structural barriers um, to certain things occur, Um, you can see how like on paper that hospital looks like it would be doing much worse and then would maybe get like reimbursed less. Um, So it's just like a really uh, destructive cycle.
3: Circling back to some comments we made earlier on the call, I also do want to give um, fair credit to the field of psychiatry that some of the ways in which they define mental illness are people's ability to engage in social interactions and not just work productivity. Um, again, that has the underlying assumption that every human wants to be social to a certain extent, but it's really <laughs> up to the patient to say like, yes, this is interfering with my, so- my um, social life or like, no, this is not interfering with my social life. And so from that perspective, um, it's an individual choice and that's what it ultimately should be.
4: Yeah, I also definitely feel like conflicting feelings about psychiatry, um, because it definitely felt sometimes like the definitions were based on like, oh, um, a high functioning, like person with schizophrenia is someone who can work. Um, So it's like, oh, that's a little strange. But then also, I found that the psychiatrists who taught us were more willing to engage than people from other specialties and having like conversations about what illness means and like what things might be problematic um, and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, so psychiatry isn't all bad. It's complicated, but yeah. Yeah, there's
0: like so many issues. I feel like we could go on for like five hours about this, but I feel like we are kind of at time.
1: Yeah, I think in terms of time, we're getting close to the end, but maybe I guess if either of our guests have any closing thoughts or wants to yeah. Whatever you most want to leave our listeners with, um, now could be a good time to share that. Yeah.
3: I would like to leave the listeners with the idea that when you enter a hospital, it feels like you don't have power in the situation. You know, a nurse comes to you and just immediately starts putting an IV in you because that is what one does when one gets admitted to the emergency department um you can say yes or no or question every single thing that is happening to you in the healthcare space and i fully encourage everyone to do that um i think that providers sometimes are not used to being questioned but ultimately if you are keeping your provider on your to- on their toes you're going to get the best care that they can possibly give you in that moment in time
4: i guess reflecting on that further um about the patient doctor relationship and just like the role of doctors in general um i think sometimes there's like this idea that like a doctor's role is to like just practice medicine um but i think like we've covered in this whole episode and like in weeks previous um like for people to have all the options available to them um, and to have this like idea of choice um, or like to have full opportunities to pursue health. Like there's all these like social barriers and like institutional barriers um, based in like racism and capitalism and like hetero um, that prevent people from like doing all of those things. Uh, so I definitely really feel that it is a responsibility for current and future healthcare providers to address these things. Um, like in some ways, I view it as malpractice to, like, not think about these things at all. Um, So I think that medical school curriculums are slowly starting to incorporate more of these topics into their curricula. Um, But in my opinion, it'll never be enough. Um, And hopefully there will be able to, or students are always working to better achieve a balance between the basic science and also, like, more full understanding of what impacts people's lives
0: yeah awesome thank you guys so much for your thoughts just now and also just like throughout this i feel like i learned so much just from listening like there's Absolutely. so much that i didn't know and so we want to say thank you both for your time and it was so lovely to have you both on
3: thanks you yeah thank you both so much also thank you so much for inviting us on this was a really oh yeah for sure yeah,
0: thank you for um, t- joining us all right, thanks so much for listening. That was an amazing episode. If you liked what you heard, you can find us on our website at seasonofthebee.com. We're on Twitter at seasonofthebee, at ins- on Instagram at seasonofthebee, and if you want to throw us some dollars, you can do so on Patreon at patreoncom bitch. There, you will have access to our Discord, which is the most wholesome community of subscribers on the planet objectively speaking <laughs> um and we have among other things an abolitionist reading group that meets every sunday and other things you can do are you can send us an email at season at gmail.com all right cool love you all love you
1: Yay. bye, love bye. You. bye. the bitch